0: Hi, my name is Brian. Welcome to Episode 3 in the podcast, Homo Deus, Humanity's Evolution from Social Institutions to World Peace. In this episode, we dive deeper into how storytelling has given Homo sapiens unique cooperation abilities, and these abilities have enabled them to dominate all the other animals. Over the years, our stories have become more and more powerful as human communities with the better stories had a survival advantage. This raises the question, can our stories keep on getting more powerful forever? Or is there a limit? And if there is, what happens when we reach this limit? Chapter 3 in Harari's book is called The Human Spark. He starts off this chapter by exploding what he calls an extremely powerful myth, that humans have souls and animals do not. Many people today believe this, and it is often key to the justification of the way we treat animals. Harari defines souls as something indivisible, immutable, and potentially eternal. And he tells us scientific investigation has found no evidence for such souls in either humans or animals. Further, the theory of evolution requires all biological entities to be composed of smaller and simpler parts that can be ceaselessly combined and separated. Something that cannot be divided or changed cannot come into existence through natural selection. Therefore, According to evolutionary theory, having a soul is impossible. Similarly, we tend to think of ourselves as individuals. But according to evolutionary theory, individuals cannot exist either. By definition, all creatures must be individuals. That is, they must be the sum of divisible and rearrangeable parts. Although animals and humans do not have souls... As best science can tell, both animals and humans do have conscious minds. Consciousness refers to the subjective experiences that have two fundamental characteristics, sensation and desire. Our stream of consciousness is a concrete reality we witness every day. Science, however, knows surprisingly little about consciousness. In the first place, Science cannot prove the existence of consciousness, and therefore none of us can be certain that anyone besides ourself has it. For thousands of years, philosophers have realized this issue and called it the problem of other minds. Science cannot give us conclusive proof that other people actually have minds. Secondly, science doesn't even know what evolutionary function subjective experiences play. We used to have answers to this that seemed satisfactory, such as avoiding pain. But the better we map the brain, the more difficult it becomes to explain why conscious feeling is necessary. Philosophers ask the trick question, what happens in the mind that doesn't happen in the brain? If something happens outside the brain, where does it happen? If nothing happens outside the brain... Why is the conscious mind needed? Harari acknowledges that consciousness raises questions about the scientific dogma, organisms are algorithms, that he introduced to us in an earlier chapter. If subjective experiences are algorithms, they should have a mathematical expression. But what could the mathematical expression of such experiences be? In the 19th century, we describe brains as steam engines, and he gives a great example from Freud, and today we describe them as computers, that is, data processing algorithms. Maybe saying organisms are algorithms is just a product of our times that will look trite and woefully inadequate sometime in the future. Given that we can't find a role for the mind, we might be tempted to discard it, or deny its relevance. But we all know the mind is a very tangible reality, so it can't be discarded. And secondly, the whole edifice of modern politics and ethics is built upon subjective experiences. For example, we consider torture and rape to be wrong because of the subjective experiences associated with them. If we deny the relevance of the conscious mind, what basis do we have for ethics? So what can we really conclude after looking at all the data? Well, Harari concludes that we humans are not that different from rats, dogs, dolphins, or chimpanzees. Like them, we have no soul. Like us, they too have consciousness and a complex world of sensations and emotions. Now that Harari has established this, he can move on to the question of what really makes humans different from animals in the next section of his chapter. Rory adds one final note, that we shouldn't treat animals as furrier versions of ourselves, as this prevents us from understanding and valuing other animals on their terms. Each animal brings its own unique abilities, which are often far superior to ours, and they should be respected on their own terms. To illustrate this point, Harari tells the story of clever Hans. Hans was a horse who could do math. He became a German celebrity in the early 1900s. When asked, Hans, what is 4 times 3? Hans would tap his hoof 12 times. And when shown a written message asking, what is 20 minus 11? Hans tapped 9 times. Of course, this surprising talent required investigation, and a special scientific commission was struck to get to the bottom of the matter. Even when Hans was separated from his owners, the commission found that he still got most of the answers right. How did he do it? Well, Hans couldn't actually do math, but he did have another way of getting to the right answer, using his horse abilities. This story illustrates how animals can have abilities superior to our own, and they should be respected on those terms. I'm not going to tell you how hounds did it. You can look it up if you really want to know. I love the way Harari weaves between partial truths in this chapter, exposing their inadequacies, and leading us on to better conclusions. I have summarized the key points from this chapter, but you should really read it for yourself. It is hard for a summary to do it justice. I do agree with what he's saying. As discussed in previous chapters, humanity evolved out of the animal world, so we should expect humans to be very similar to the animals. So if Homo sapiens are so similar to animals, what unique abilities do we have that enable us to dominate all the other animals people often suggest tool production or intelligence but for a million years humans were already the most intelligent animals around as well as the best tool makers yet they remained insignificant creatures with little impact on the surrounding ecosystem they were obviously lacking some key feature other than intelligence and tool making and it doesn't seem like there is a correlation between better tool-making and intelligence of individual humans with the power of the species as a whole. 20,000 years ago, the average Homo sapien probably had higher intelligence and better tool-making skills than the average Homo sapien of today. Yet despite the superior abilities, sharper minds, and far more acute senses, 20,000 years ago humankind was much, much weaker in aggregate than it is today. No, the reason humans are able to dominate is that they are the only species capable of cooperating flexibly in large numbers. I know I said this in previous episodes, but let me say it one more time. To the best of our knowledge, only Homo sapiens can cooperate in very flexible ways with countless number of strangers. Animals such as elephants and chimpanzees cooperate flexibly, but only in small numbers of friends and family, based on personal acquaintance. Animals such as bees and ants cooperate in large numbers, but only in fixed patterns. They are not flexible. The answer to how we do this is not immediately obvious. One thing that might surprise you is that human behavior is often completely different when large numbers of people are involved than from what you might expect in observing small groups. For example, when small groups of people are observed, you get the impression that they would never tolerate inequality. That's not fair, they protest. But when you look at large groups of people, the result is just the opposite. Most human kingdoms and empires were extremely unequal. So how do humans do it? Well, all large scale human cooperation is ultimately based on our belief in imagined orders. People often find it difficult to understand the idea of imagined orders. They assume there are only two kinds of reality objective realities, that everyone can feel and touch, and subjective realities, which are the sensations and emotions that individuals experience on their own. But there is a third kind of reality. Intersubjective realities. Intersubjective realities are things we believe in together. Money is a good example. Intersubjective realities are formed as people reinforce each other's beliefs in a self perpetuating loop. Each round of mutual confirmation tightens the web of meaning further until you have little choice but to believe in what everyone else believes. For example, How far would you get in life if you didn't believe in money? Probably not very far, but we all know money's value is purely imaginary. There is nothing concrete or tangible about it. Although these realities form very tight webs, over decades and centuries, the webs of meaning unravel, and new webs are spun to take their place. Again, I agree with what Harari is saying, and I love the way he develops his material. But I would like to explore a few points further that I think are important. In particular, how did our ability to cooperate flexibly in large numbers arise? At one point in history we did not have it, and now we do. How did this happen? And Harari says that during the last 70,000 years, the intersubjective realities that sapiens invented became ever more powerful. This makes me wonder, in what way have these realities become more powerful? And this implies we're on a journey, so is there an end point to the journey? Or can the stories go on becoming more powerful indefinitely? As discussed in the previous podcast, our ability to weave webs of imagined meaning arose to help us manage the problem of internal violence. In particular, early humans established religions, consisting of a set of taboos, incentives, rituals, and stories that helped them cooperate and survive. The first religions were likely very primitive, maybe a few rocks arranged on the ground, maybe certain gestures or spoken sounds. These were the first human social institutions. They served the evolutionary purpose of limiting behaviors that exacerbated internal conflict and redirecting violent tendencies to safer targets, such as enemies or the disenfranchised. These webs of meaning arose to help early communities survive the threat of internal violence, but once they arose, they became more and more powerful, enabling surprisingly large civilizations. Prior to the rise of our intersubjective realities and social institutions, we were like our animal cousins, controlling our violence through mechanisms like the dominant structure and the pecking order, and our community sizes stayed very small. Given that we used to use animal methods for controlling our violence, before we became homo sapiens, it is certainly possible that other animals could go through the same transformation we did although practically speaking there are obstacles. We need to remember how long our pre-human ancestors evolved without experiencing this change in the way they controlled their violence. Very intelligent pre-humans walked the earth for millions of years until this happened. It's hard to know what triggered it, but once triggered, we started on a journey towards more and more powerful stories. And given how we dominate the world right now, There is little opportunity for this transformation to happen to other animals. But if we were for some reason removed from the picture, then who knows, it might happen. What we do know is that it did happen to us. And once we started down the path of using imagined orders to cooperate, it makes sense from an evolutionary perspective that the stories would get more and more powerful. The human societies with the stronger stories have an advantage. They can cooperate better and are therefore able to better defend themselves or overpower their neighbors. This puts pressure on the stories to keep on getting better and better. But can the stories go on becoming more powerful indefinitely? I think the answer is no. The very existence of Harari's book... As an international bestseller, suggests that there is a subset of people who recognize that our webs of meaning are all fictions. Can a story ever be told that is powerful enough to convince them? Also, our stories all contain fictions about what the right use of violence is. Can new stories be invented that will continue to convince a critical mass of people that the violence they promote is really justified? When I look around the world, I see lots of signs that we are having difficulty constructing these webs of meaning. But who knows, maybe a new compelling story will emerge that captures the masses. Or maybe we are at a tipping point, where we will no longer be able to construct stories that support traditional webs of meaning. Let's review the historical examples of webs of meaning that Harari included in his chapter it is important to observe how they organize and direct violence. The way Harari presents these webs of meaning, the reader may go away thinking that they are relatively neutral fictions that arise somewhat randomly. But looking at each of them, we can see how they all fulfill the key evolutionary purpose of organizing and directing violence so as to protect the human community from the very serious threat of internal violence. The first story comes from the times of Robin Hood. A young Prince John joins the Third Crusade to recapture the holy city from the infidel Muslims. In this web of meaning, the Muslims were the bad guys, and violence directed towards them is good violence. Everyone in Europe agreed on that. Although they would never consciously recognize it, The crusade helps the people of Europe get along with each other. It took pressure off the system. Harari notes how even John's sworn rival, the baron on the other side of the river, paid him a visit to wish him godspeed on joining the third crusade. This is how the group psychology of scapegoating works. John's family and the baron's family get along better because they both agree the Muslims are the bad guys. On a related note, why does the story of Robin Hood have such enduring appeal for us? A key character in the story is the Sheriff of Nottingham. He's a bad dude. We, the viewers, all agree on that. In the end, he is overthrown and he gets what's coming to him. And that makes us feel good. We experience a catharsis when justice is inflicted on the Sheriff. We feel just a little less frustrated after seeing the movie, and that helps us get along better. That is why most of the movies we watch need to have bad guys. We want to see the bad guys get it. This is the same reason human communities had ceremonies involving ritualistic killing. The Greek philosopher Aristotle commented on this 2,500 years ago. Aristotle made the point that watching the Greek tragedies provided a similar catharsis to the audience as temple sacrifices. When we read of someone going on a crusade to fight infidels in the Holy Land, or ancient practices of ritualistic killing, we look at the behavior as bizarre and pat ourselves on the back for being nothing like that. But the reality is we are very much like that, just with updated stories. Getting back to Harari's examples, The Muslims, led by Saladin, held similar views for similar reasons. Violence directed towards crusaders, or any other war they may happen to be participating in, is good violence. If they died on the battlefield, they would immediately go to heaven. And it is surprising how enduring these webs of meaning are. The Muslims ultimately prevailed at the time of the Crusades, but in 1920... The French general, Henri Gourard, apparently went to Saladin's grave, kicked it, and announced, Nous sommes retenant. Apparently this story is not fully verified, but it is interesting how it captures our imagination. Harari also mentions the communist web of meaning. Communism paints the bourgeois as the problem. Violence directed at the bourgeois is good violence, helping to establish the future communist paradise. Liberal democracies, on the other hand, have to struggle a bit more to identify their victims, but they have generally gotten by on combinations of anti-communism, nationalism, racism, sexism, and the class system. These are issues that we are very familiar with today. Human rights are different, though. In theory, human rights don't allow for victimization. The whole point of human rights is that people have basic rights regardless of their religion, politics, race, or anything else. Human rights can certainly be twisted, but at their very core they threaten the mechanism we as a species have used to succeed. Animals use the dominant structure. Humans organize violence through social institutions. No human society has existed yet without agreement on what the good violence is. The existence of human rights is a sign that a day may be coming where we can no longer create believable fictions to justify our violence. And consider the word scapegoat. The word scapegoat comes from a very ancient Israelite religious rite of putting the sins of a community on a goat and sending it out of the community. The scapegoat is one of two kid goats. As a pair, one goat was sacrificed, and the living scapegoat was released into the wilderness, taking with it all sins and impurities. To the ancient Israelites, this was a meaningful ritual that helped them control their violence. But today the word has come to signify the psychological process whereby a group of people blame their problems on an innocent victim. The way the word scapegoat is used today is a sign that we are becoming aware. And therefore a day may be coming where we can no longer create believable fictions to justify our violence. So we are on a journey. Our fictions have become more and more powerful, more and more convincing. But they have to be because we are finding it more and more difficult to really truly believe they are true and that the violence they promote is justified. This is certainly a good thing from a justice perspective. But it is also a problem. Because we need to really believe, or else we won't be able to spin the webs of meaning that we need in order to cooperate. And what happens when we run out of stories that facilitate our cooperation? The only reasonable conclusion is that we will go extinct. Without cooperation, we cannot exist. We will self-destruct. We can't go back to the ways of the animal kingdom animals control their violence through mechanisms like the dominant structure or the pecking order, these won't work for us anymore. Our only hope is that a new version of humanity emerges that is able to control its internal violence in a new way. This may be a shocking conclusion. You might ask, given all the obstacles our species faces like climate change, environmental degradation, inequality, injustice, breakdown of our social institutions, why would I focus on this somewhat obscure and technical evolutionary issue? Well, I would argue that the way we control violence is a key driver of all these other problems. We are not able to cooperate sufficiently well to fully resolve these problems. For example, consider climate change. The problem isn't that we don't have good enough science or that we don't know what to do. The problem is we can't cooperate well enough to implement the solutions. Harari doesn't mention the problem of inadequate cooperation or internal violence directly, but he does mention our dependence on growth, the problem of climate change, and the breakdown of humanism, all issues that seem to be coming to a head and may be true existential threats to humanity. As I have discussed earlier, Harari assumes we will somehow be able to get around these problems, but I think this is a dangerous assumption that distracts us from getting down to what we really need to do. We need to learn a new way of cooperating with each other. Without this, we will remain locked in competition with each other, we will continue to face frustration, continue to do damage to the environment and to people, and continue to make up fictions to lie to ourselves about the situation. Harari notes that there is a lot riding on the intersubjective entities we create. I totally agree. I am simply suggesting that in order for us to create new intersubjective entities that actually solve our problems, we need to be really honest about who we are as a species. Instead of blaming the problem on others, like we have done from the beginning, 70,000 years ago, we need to come face-to-face with who we are as Homo sapiens and then implement strategies that really address the root problem. Our situation is not dissimilar to the wolves, who we talked about earlier. Obviously, it was a good strategy for a long, long time for wolves to compete with humans to be the top predator. But at some point, humans became so powerful that it became a losing strategy that would only lead them on the path to extinction like so many other animals. But some wolves did end up on a different path. They became a lot friendlier and allowed homo sapiens to domesticate them. Homo sapiens even started to referring to them as humanity's best friend. The way we control our violence is not really our fault. This is just the way we evolved. And it has worked. Yes, there have been a lot of innocent victims along the way. But at the same time, no one can deny that Homo sapiens have been very successful. Our approach to controlling our violence has gotten us to where we are today. Just like it seemed to make sense for the wolves to keep on competing to be the top predator, who can really blame us if we think it makes sense to keep on relying on our social institutions and keep on turning a blind eye to the injustices they create? After all, this is the way we have done it since the beginning, 70,000 years ago. But there is a problem. Our stories, our webs of meaning, have become ever more powerful. And there comes a point where the stories just can't become any more powerful, and therefore they can no longer serve their evolutionary purpose of holding back the violence and destruction. At this point, Homo sapiens go extinct. Wolves were able to evolve into friendly companions. What about us? Are we able to evolve? It seems impossible. We are so used to competing against each other, forming tribal alliances, blaming the problems on others, that it is difficult to imagine anything else. But things cannot go on as they are for much longer. You do not have to look far to see very strong evidence for this. Homo sapiens will either go extinct, or they will evolve into Homo Deus. Maybe the path to Homo Deus will start with little changes, Maybe it will start with some people looking out for others when they have no competitive reasons for doing so. Maybe it will start with human rights. Maybe it will start with some awareness that our scapegoats aren't really causing the problems. Maybe these little changes will quietly accumulate until all of a sudden we can't help but admit this was something really, really big. So let me summarize what we talked about in Episode 3. It is an objective fact that humans dominate all other animals today. This sort of dominance has never been seen before in evolutionary history. It is unique. So what is it about humans that gives us this unique ability? It is not the existence of an indivisible, eternal soul. Science has found no evidence for such a soul in either humans or animals. It is not consciousness, as best science can tell, both humans and animals have consciousness. It is not technology or intelligence. Humans had the best technology and the greatest intelligence for over a million years, and it did not lead to their dominance over animals. No, our uniqueness comes from our ability to cooperate flexibly. We do this by setting up social institutions like religion, and then telling stories about these institutions to establish intersubjective realities that govern our behavior and relationships. A key component of each of these intersubjective realities is separating the good violence from the bad violence. The good violence is the violence we participate in together, and therefore it strengthens our tribal alliance. The bad violence is uncontrolled violence that threatens to rip the community apart. In the case of Christianity in the times of Robin Hood, the Muslims were the bad guys. And in the case of communism, the bourgeois are the bad guys. The problem here is that it turns out that the good violence is arbitrary. The violence being directed at medieval Muslims or the bourgeois really have nothing to do with their supposed crimes, in spite of how elegant our stories are. Our stories have gotten more and more powerful over the years, They've had to in order to maintain the illusion of justified violence and convince even larger numbers of people. But there comes a point in our evolution where the stories can no longer sustain the necessary belief required in order to maintain cooperation. Human rights and language like the word scapegoat are signs that people are losing their belief that the violence is justified. At some point, we will run out of stories that are able to do the job. At this point, we will no longer be able to cooperate sufficiently, and therefore, we will go extinct. For Homo sapiens, there is no standing still. We cannot go back to the ways of the animal kingdom. Our only hope is that a new version of ourselves emerges that is better able to cooperate. The evidence that our cooperation skills are not going to hold up much longer is all around us. Our inability to resolve climate change is a good example. Homo sapiens just don't have the cooperation skills to address a complex problem like this. We are in the process of going extinct. That's it for Episode 3. Thank you so much for joining. I hope I can ask you for a favor. I would like to get more listeners for this podcast. If you are finding it interesting or thinking that it could be an important conversation, I hope you can help spread the word. Please tell your friends about it or comment on social media. This would be very helpful. Thank you so much for considering it. And as I've mentioned earlier, please feel free to send me an email. I've left my address in the show notes. Please join me next week for the next episode in this podcast, which focuses on chapter 4 in Harari's book, called The Storytellers. In this chapter, Harari explains how ancient Sumerian gods are similar to today's corporations. This sounds odd at first. How can an ancient god be like the Apple Corporation today? But Harari explains how both the Sumerian god Enki and the modern Apple Corporation can accomplish a great deal If we all act like they really exist Also we will discuss How Harari's book Is similar to the Bible Again it sounds odd But we will see if we can find Any strong similarities Please join me next week